Hey, man, how's it going, y'all? Welcome to the show. <clears throat> it's my show, Scott Horton Show. Welcome to it. I better write up a blog entry here. Today's show. Trita Parsi and Patrick Coburn. The CK is silent. Mm-hmm. 12 to 2 Eastern. Now I have lots of copying and pasting. Uh, yeah, hey, join up the chat room if you want. That's a good thing for me to say while I'm filling up dead air. Uh, got a nice little chat room. Nice little group of guys hang out in the chat room every day. You could be one of them. Uh, fake name and a caption, you're in. In fact, uh, you don't even have to type the caption anymore. You just have to check the I'm not a robot box, which is pretty nice. ScottHorton.org slash chat if you want to hang out there with the guys. Let me find some things to copy and paste here about a little bit of promoting the show today. Like I say, Trita Parsi's going to be back on the show. Why, I don't think we've spoken with Trita since the summertime. Back when there was a question of whether we're going to get this goddamn Iran deal done or not. Well, now it's done. So we're way overdue now for an update on implementation of the Iran nuclear deal. And then also, uh, Patrick Coburn, well, you know, if it was up to me, I'd interview him every day, although I think he'd probably finally get bored of me. It's amazing that he still comes on the show all the time, isn't it? Um, but uh, he wrote this really great piece about the Arab Spring. And, of course, you know, just because I've been lucky enough to have been doing this for so long, um, I've been interviewing Coburn since, I think, the later part of 2006. Or, or early 07. Oh, you know what it is? It was an article that he wrote in late 06 about the the Copper Corps EFPs. But I don't think I interviewed him about it until February or March of 07, something like that. But anyway, so I've been interviewing uh, Patrick Coburn for all these years. And so when the Arab Spring came and went, we got all these interviews of him from during that time, too. And so it's a great time to kind of recap. Of all the guests that I talked to uh, back in 2011 at the dawn of the Arab Spring, most were very cautious, uh, certainly opposed American intervention, except for Juan Cole, who came out full-throated support for intervention in Libya, which is his undying shame. Uh, but anyway, pretty much everybody was, was pretty cautious, except... You know, it was a pretty common message here. It's America's dictators are being overthrown. Surely the people overthrowing them know that. And certainly with all of the American intervention in the region, especially the overt intervention of the Iraq War, Iraq War II, over the last few years, there's certainly an element of the people of the region overthrowing their American-backed dictators, asterisk, behind it, and that maybe that's a real change here, you know. And Coburn just says, yeah, well... It sure is fun to look at things like this and and look for historical precedents like the absolutely historically unheard of 
almost entirely peaceful fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the communist empire's rule over Eastern Europe and Central Asia. I mean, that just doesn't happen. It's just absolutely a, a Christmas miracle kind of a thing, the way that communism fell apart in the former USSR. So then these kinds of things start happening in the Middle East, and we go, oh, look, it's sort of like another little velvet revolution. Yeah, well, sort of, kind of, except this time, instead of Gorbachev, we got the kings of Saudi Arabia are the ones being asked to relinquish their power and authority, and they're not so quick to do that. Oh, yeah, and the American commissars, Politburo leaders as well. And so, well, the Arab Spring, it's uh, it's been mostly a mess in the last few years and uh, mostly Uncle Sam's fault but not entirely and Patrick Coburn anyway has just a long way of saying he wrote a good article about it and I'm going to interview him about it here in a while if you'll hang around you'll get to hear it alright uh, tons of news to talk about on the show today um I guess first I'll talk about Rand Paul now just so because I have so little time left in this segment. That way I won't go on and on about it too much. And in the next segment I'll get straight to the wars. But I got to talk about Rand. And um, I got a few different things to say. I guess first of all just the news is that he's been disqualified from the big boy debate and was going to be um, you know, relegated to the kids table in a debate with Carly Fiorina. I guess Jindal and Pataki are out, and uh, Santorum's still in there. Lindsey Graham is out. Santorum's still in there, but he doesn't even have the percentages to even qualify for the little kid debate. But anyway, so Rand, basically, he got flunked out of the main debate, and he said, well, I'm not going to debate Fiorina, just me and her. Uh, I'll just go and campaign myself and do my own thing and this and that. Anyway, so this is a great opportunity for me to say told you so and all that kind of thing. But the real point is, um, to me, is that, man, I hate this. And the only reason I hate Rand is because of just the level of disappointment here. Uh, you know, every senator is a senator. I mean, what, what more horrible thing could you say about them other than they sit in the U.S. Senate? I mean, that's all you need to know. But this is the son of Ron. This is the guy who, short of the presidency itself, has the greatest bully pulpit in the world. Better than any Hollywood star, because any Hollywood star with politics still, you're just a Hollywood star. What do you know? No matter how famous you are, what do you know? But this is the U.S. Senate, where... You know, in the House, you go to work, you leave, whatever, whatever. But to a senator, there's a media gaggle there wet, ready and waiting for your press conference every single day if you want. You'd be on CNN every single day if you want. And anyway, whatever. His his role was supposed to be young Ron in the Senate to... to uh, Take the whatever stupid sports analogy to take the ball wherever uh, Ron Paul left off and to pick it up and to move it forward from there, right? Not to run the wrong damn way on the field. 
And for years I've said this. Oh, no, look at what he's doing. From from 2009, from the first time I interviewed him. Oh, no, look at what he's doing. Trying to be an acceptable Republican. This is going to suck. And it's bad politics for him. It's the wrong thing for him to be doing for his own political gain. He thinks it's smart, but it's not smart. Nobody listens to me, because why the hell would they listen to me? I'm only right about everything, always. And now, you know, I read a liberal wrote at The Guardian the other day, so where are all the Rand Paul bumper stickers? They're gone. It's not because people listen to me and I influence them or whatever. It's simply because Rand absolutely fails to inspire. And why? Because he's flip-flopping all around, trying to pander before every horrible little sect of Republicans. All different Republican factions who were all for horrible things. You know, Ron Paul was a politician and was not a purist when he was running for president. He made major compromises, like, I'm not going to kick all the grandparents off welfare, off Social Security. They paid into it. He wasn't willing to compromise on mass murder. He was willing to compromise on the welfare state if we can agree to come together to abolish the empire. You see the principle in that? And so Rand is getting exactly what he deserves. Nothing. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, y'all, guess what? You can now order transcripts of any interview I've done for the incredibly reasonable price of two and a half bucks each. Listen, finding a good transcriptionist is near impossible, but I've got one now. Just go to scotthorton.org slash transcripts, enter the name and date of the interview you want written up, click the PayPal button, and I'll have it in your email in 72 hours max. You don't need a PayPal account to do this. Man, I'm really going to have to learn how to talk more good. That's scotthorton.org slash transcripts. Hey, I'm Scott. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Uh-oh. Hey, somebody in the chat room, help out this dude in the chat room. I gotta do a show now. Yeah, man, um... Hey, help support the show if you want. Uh, I need advertisers. If you want to be an advertiser on the show, let me know. We'll work out a deal. Help you sell some goods and services and... Help me continue doing a radio show. It'll be great. Just email me, scott at scotthorton.org, if you're interested in advertising on the show. Um, and then there's all kinds of uh, wonderful kickbacks and special gifts. I'll send you an NPR tote bag. No, I'm just kidding. I'll send you a silver coin. A silver round. <clears throat> Correction. A silver... A uh, piece of metal that is circular and weighs an ounce and is a pure element. And has a QR code on the back and tells you how much it's worth in real time all the time. Isn't that great? The QR code, Commodity Disc. You donate 100 bucks to the show, you get one. Or you can get Sheldon Richmond's book, Your Money or Your Life Against the Income Tax, or... 
the great Charles Goyette's book, Red, Blue, and Broke All Over. Uh, obviously about the U.S. government and its debts. Uh, or you can get the audiobook of Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell, narrated by me. Uh, if you donate 50 bucks, then you can get, um, any one audiobook from Listen and Think Audio. And if you donate 200 bucks, which is a lot of money, even in inflationary type of times, uh, if you donate $200, you get a lifetime subscription to Listen and Think Audio. And uh, Derek Sheriff, it's a labor of love. He's already done dozens, and he's going to do dozens and dozens more. He wants to put all of libertarianism on audiobook, and you will get all of them, all of them, forever. All the ones that have been done, all the ones that ever do get done, from here on out. From listenandthink.com. Lifetime subscription if you donate $200 to help support the Scott Horton Show. Uh, and then also, and I don't say this nearly often enough, I should say this every single day. Uh, those of you who are regular subscribers for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 35, one came in this morning for 35, um, and, and some are, are a bit more, but, but these 5, 10, 20, uh, sized, uh, uh, regular subscription donations, you know, monthly donations are really great. They really help. That's gas in the trucks and electric bills and, uh, yeah, car insurance, fascist state. Anyway, uh, yeah, absolutely appreciate you guys' support. Uh, that's how I do this. I could sit here and try to scare you all day into giving me money. Or I could sit here and take the side of one collectivist political party faction or another like that. Uh, I could try to sidle up to some evil think tank. But no, I'll just stick with Hornberger and the Future Freedom Foundation and you. So uh, thanks for your support. Sorry to keep going on like that. I hate to sound like some NPR beggar. But, uh, yeah, you know. Cost of living just keeps going up. You know from your very own experience, too. ScottHorton.org slash donate to find out all about how you can help to support the show. Uh, that's strange. Um, join up the chat room again, ScottHorton.org slash stress. You guys got that thing working there now or what? Yeah? No? Um, let's see. Okay, so I talked about that. Silver coins. Audiobooks. ScottHorton.org slash donate. I talked about Rand. Ha-ha. <laughs> um, Iran deal. That's coming up with Trita Parsi. Oh, I know what I want to talk about now, man, is the Constitutional Convention. You know, I don't like Greg Abbott, and I really hardly, blah, 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 blah. I hardly know a thing about the guy other than he's the Republican governor of Texas, and that's bad enough for me. I mean, not that a Democratic governor of Texas would be any better, but just, uh, I don't really like governors of Texas. So he came out with a thing proposing some constitutional amendments, and I didn't even really pay much attention last week when I saw him, because who cares about that kind of stuff? That kind of thing mostly goes nowhere anyway, and we already have a Tenth Amendment, so what are you going to do, prosecute people who violate it now, or what's the, yeah, 
You're going to... But then I read the headline that said, no, he's proposing a constitutional convention. Which goes by the ridiculous sounding nickname ConCon, so that you won't want to talk about it because you sound like a stupid idiot using that phrase. Uh, he's calling for a convention of states to amend the U.S. Constitution as per what, Article 6 or 7 or whatever it is. It says, hey. Here's how you can amend the Constitution. Either you get both houses of Congress to pass it by two-thirds supermajorities, and the states, the number of states to pass it by a super-duper majority of three-fourths, then the Constitution is thereby amended. That's the law. That's how you do it. Or the states, and I forget now whether... It, it takes two-thirds or three-quarters of the states to ask for one. Uh, if enough states ask for a constitutional convention or demand one, pass a resolution calling for one, they get one. And, uh, is it two-thirds? Where is it? I'm sorry, I'm trying to scan through here. Uh, I don't think it even says in this stupid article. But anyway, whatever the number is, here's what I know about this. Uh, the John Birch Society has actually done the best work in this country over generations now, opposing a constitutional convention and sending people to educate state legislators as to why they ought to not pass resolutions calling for a constitutional convention and educating legislators in states who have passed resolutions in and convincing them and getting them succeeding uh, numerous times, I believe, in getting them to rescind their resolutions calling for a constitutional convention. Because you see, if there's a constitutional convention, then all bets are off. They could rewrite the entire Bill of Rights. They could rewrite the First Amendment to say, oh, I mean, unless you make someone feel uncomfortable, when, or unless it's about Israel, or God knows what. You know, it came up yesterday in that Trevor Tim interview that according to the courts, the only thing outlawing the government from murdering all of us is the word reasonable in the Fourth Amendment. They cannot seize the life right out of our bodies unless it's reasonable. In the Constitutional Convention, they could just cross that right out. I mean, they already act like the damn thing's null and void. Our Bill of Rights is nothing but tradition is all we got left anyway. But you want to go ahead and outright throw it in the garbage? Oh, and just think of all the liberals trying to take your guns. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, all Scott here. The thing is, I need you guys to help me to get these download numbers up. So do me a favor and sign up for the podcast feeds of this show. You can choose the whole show or just the interviews at iTunes and Stitcher. All the buttons you need are at the top of the right margin at scotthorton.org. 
The more subscribers I have, the more iTunes and Stitcher will help promote the show to new listeners. If you're a hardcore fan, brand new or from way back, please leave them customer ratings and reviews, too. Trying to get these wars ended. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. It's libertarian foreign policy, mostly. Uh, introducing our friend, Trita Parsi, from the National Iranian American Council. Welcome back to the uh, show. How are you doing, Trita? I'm doing well. How are you, Scott? Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you, too, man. Uh, I'm doing good. I hope you're doing good. Um, congratulations. I don't know if, you know, with all all we talked uh, last summer about the nuclear deal, I don't know if we actually did a victory lap. I, I know I talked with Reza <laughs> and Gareth and, and a few others, but I don't know whether I ever got a chance to actually congratulate you for your success is in uh, in due no small part to your hard work and your colleagues there at NIAC uh, that you. this nuclear deal became possible, that, first of all, that all the false narratives uh, had at least much weaker legs to stand on because of you guys' work in undermining the propaganda, all the warmongering propaganda. But then, plus, of course, all the affirmative work that you're doing and constantly pushing for peace and understanding between our two nations so thanks and thank you so much i appreciate it and thank you for all the work you've done and and getting the message out and make sure that the debate became more nuanced i mean if we had um a mainstream media that actually brought into um the debate several different perspectives i'm sure that we would have been able to avoid a lot of different um uh, crisis that uh, the united states has gotten itself into sure Think about what a long way we've come. I mean, it used to be that every single David Sanger article in the New York Times just referred <laughs> offhand to Iran's illicit nuclear weapons program. And yeah, now yeah. They, they've had to way, way, way climb down from all that nonsense. And now we've got the nuclear deal. And now, hey, it's New Year's. So I need a real update from you about just uh, how much of this deal has been implemented by the two different sides at this point. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, it's, we've gone a tremendous, uh, distance. Uh, remember there were a lot of question marks. A lot of folks were nervous that the Iranians wouldn't be implementing it correctly. The Iranians were nervous that the IEA would not give them, um, uh, an approval, uh, on the work that they had done and the fact that the past military dimensions issue was put to rest. So, now we're at a situation in which within the next couple of days, hours actually, the Iranians may have completed what they had committed themselves to do in order for sanctions to be lifted. Uh, and this can be announced any day this week, actually. And that's a huge step because the last step of all of this is for the Iranians to take out the core of the Iraq um, reactor and fill it with cement. And that work has already begun. And uh, and that can be finished within the next couple of days. Mm -hmm. By the way, can you help me clarify, because there are conflicting news stories about this, one that says, hey, they filled it with concrete, and the other that says, no, Iranian official denies. And I think the latter was from the AFP. It wasn't just some crankery. Yeah, no, I think what has happened is that they've begun that process, and whether that will be finished today, tomorrow, or the day after is the issue. I think in the beginning, some people had gotten the impression that it had already been completed. It's not been completed. And at the end of the day, there's been a couple of instances of this kind in which um, some stories have perhaps been a little bit ahead of themselves. But it actually doesn't matter because nothing is finalized until the IEA goes in there and verifies it. That's when we know it's been done. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, okay. And so 
Now, and you're saying this is the last thing to do on their checklist? On their checklist before sanctions are lifted. Then there's obviously additional checklists that will go on for some time on right. other issues. But, on the permanent um, inspections and all that. But this is exactly, the, what exactly. they have to do to basically get it started. And so exactly. now, now let's go down this list here for a second. You say the Iraq Corps, uh, they're filling that with concrete. Um, and that is... And and can you help me with this too? The and can you clarify the difference between what they're doing with the Iraq and the Boucher reactors in terms? Are they, they're shutting one of them down, or they're both going to be running as light water reactors now? Is that it? No. So uh, Boucher is actually kind of outside of this um, issue. Uh, there, I, I think there may be some additional inspections taking place, but Boucher has not been a core nonproliferation concern because it's already um, a light water reactor. Is that it? Exactly, and they already had an agreement with the Russians that has been going on for some year in which the spent fuel is actually taken by the Russians and right. is never kept inside of Iran. So that's not really been a main issue. Okay. Iraq has been an issue because that would have provided the Iranians with a plutonium path towards a nuclear weapon. And that's now, within the next couple of days, going to be closed with them filling the core of the reactor with cement. Right. Okay, and then... Uh, the uranium stocks, they had a stockpile of, I forget how many kilograms of low enriched uranium, electricity grade U-235, uh, 3.6% U-235. But then, uh, am I correct uh, that I read that they have converted all they need to fuel rods and plates for their reactors and they've shipped off all the rest to Russia? They've shipped it off and uh, <clears throat> that issue seems to be essentially uh, completed it as well. And as a result of this, we're going to have um, a, a scenario pretty soon in which um, IA is going to confirm all of this, and then the Europeans are going to lift their sanctions, and the president is going to start waiving a lot of the American sanctions that are on Iran. Well, we're going to get back to the sanctions in a second. I just want to make sure we, we check off our checklist here. Now, the comm facility, Fordo, uh, this is the secondary enrichment plant. Have they... Uh, completed the conversion to a research facility and ceased all enrichment there? Um, it seems like that has already been done. Again, we're waiting for final confirmation from the IAEA. Uh, my impression is that the last big step has been the, the Iraq reactor, and that's what they're working on right now. So, in other words, the the journalism says that the work at COM, the Fordo facility, is done. We just don't have it in the official IAEA paperwork yet. That's my reading, yes. And, again... Uh, the way the deal has been structured is such that nothing really is going to happen until the IEA comes in and verifies it, and the IEA has been given um, complete access uh, to these steps, at least, when it comes to the implementation on the Iranian side. Mm -hmm. And what was kind of interesting in the negotiations was that the Iranians, uh, for several reasons, partly because of a pride issue, but also because of a mistrust issue, um, negotiate in such a way so that, yes, they will take a lot of these steps first before sanctions are lifted. But the decision to lift sanctions was taken already back then on ad adoption date back in October 18th of last year. So if the Iranians do this and the, the IEA approves it, then the U.S. and the EU have already made a decision that sanctions are going to be lifted. It's not going to be reviewed again. It's not going to be a situation in which Congress can step in again. The decision has already been made. It's just been pending a verification from the IEA that the Iranians have done what they should be doing. Right. Okay, and now, this is kind of interesting. I mean, I'm sorry, I know that this is all kind of, you know, old hat and silly to you, but, uh, you know, for, for 
you know, people listening who, you know, they got to deal with their dad and their uncle arguing about these things. There was a huge scandal last summer about how the Iranians are going to have the ability to drag out the inspection of the Parchin facility for 24 days, which will be enough time for them to cover up all their nuclear weapons work. And this was huge last summer, right? Uh, well, whatever happened with that, the 24 days Nothing. and the Iranians dragging out and abusing this, their end of this deal, Trita? Nothing really happened. Part of that was not just about Parchin. Part of it was also the fact that if there is any evidence that emerges that the Iranians may be having an additional secret site, um, the, the additional protocol gives the IEA access to sites that are not declared, but it's not as if we can just jump into the car and drive there. They need to request access, and the Iranians then need to accept it, and there's going to be a review process of 24 days in which they, they may have some objections. They may be able to prevent evidence that counters the evidence that would suggest that there's any activities going on there. The fact that it would take 24 days is something that some folks in Congress really jumped on and tried to make it sound as if that was a major deficiency in the agreement. And that's completely ridiculous, because if there is anything taking place uh, of nuclear nature, rest assured, the traces of that will stay for years, not just for 24 days. In fact, when it came to the Parachin site, the activities that seems to have taken place there were taking place before 2003. We're confident that we could actually be able to trace those activities because of the radiation, etc. All right, hold it right there. We'll be right back, y'all, with Trita Parsi from NIACouncil.org after this. Who says Austrian school libertarians have to be statists on immigration? We should support government goons busting people's heads to keep them out of the country? Well, some have tried to make that case in the past. But now David Hathaway's hard-hitting new book, Immigration, Individual versus National Borders, refutes point by point every argument they've made. This is a short, well-written book that shuts down the closed borders argument once and for all. Immigration, Individual versus National Borders by David Hathaway. Forward by me. Buy it now on Amazon.com in both print and Kindle versions. Don't you get sick of the Israel lobby trying to get us into more wars in the Middle East? Or always abusing Palestinians with your tax dollars? It once seemed like the lobby would always have full-spectrum dominance on the foreign policy discussion in D.C. But those days are over. The Council for the National Interest is the America lobby, standing up and pushing back against the Israel lobby's undue influence on Capitol Hill. Go show some support at CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. That's CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Man, some of the insane things I read during these breaks. You have no idea. Uh, talking with Trita Parsi from the National Iranian American Council about the implementation of the Iran deal, uh, the Iran nuclear deal. And uh, the one more technical thing I wanted to ask you uh, about the Iranian side of the implementation of the deal here was about the expanded inspections under the additional protocol and the subsidiary arrangements. Uh, Trita, if, if I understand correctly, the deal calls for the IAEA to be able to um, uh, monitor and inspect the mines and even the centrifuge facilities where there is no nuclear material, but where they make the centrifuges so they can help keep track of them and this kind of thing. Do you know if they've gone that far in implementing that part of the deal where the IAEA yeah. has gone ahead and installed monitor you know, equipment? Yeah, and the, already on adoption day, the Iranians started implementing what is called the additional protocol. And these are measures that are included in the additional protocol. So um, it's, you know, things have really moved 
pretty fast and positively. Right. Um, and this is, um, again, something that many of the critics were so skeptical about and, um, frankly, a bit arrogant in, in their criticism. And I think there, there's, there's certainly things that you can be critical of this deal. Um, but I think it was a mistake by the critics to focus on minor details that they blew out of proportion and misrepresented. I think the real concern that they have is that making this deal with Iran essentially ensures that there is a Western acceptance that Iran is a major power in the region and that the United States is no longer going to pursue regime change and that it's accepting and trying to accommodate the fact that Iran is a major player in the region and has to have a role and a space in the region that is commensurate with that geopolitical weight. Mm-hmm. That's the key thing that a lot of folks in Israel and Saudi Arabia strongly oppose. They don't want to see this shift in balance of power, and they don't want to see the United States accept that shift in balance of power. Right. And I, I don't think that's strange at all. In fact, countries all the time are trying to make sure that their position and that their influence is retained internationally. But these arguments were not the ones that were presented. The arguments that were presented were really uh, hollow and rather superficial and oftentimes flat-out false arguments. Right. Well, and that's a good explanation for one, because it never really was uh, what they were worried about. They just had to kind of come up with an excuse, because they can't just say outright that, well, we're worried about losing our power and influence. We're, we don't want you to normalize relations. Cold War between you and him forever is a yeah. pretty difficult stance to take publicly, so might as well make up something. But then, so yeah, when you talk about kind of the hollowness of the, the arguments against it, like for example, on the inspections, oh, they're going to drag out the inspections. Oh, they're going to fight. They're going to, they're going to take up to 24 days on every little thing and this and that. All went, all those arguments went against the basic truth, which was the Iranians really want this deal and they have virtually no incentive to cheat. They're the ones who weren't making nuclear bombs all along. And all they were trying to do is get us to acknowledge it. And then, as you say, sort of somewhat, uh, you know, come to their terms and negotiate. And as as your colleague uh, Reza Marashi said on the show, it's not the sanctions that brought them to the table as much as it's their centrifuges that finally brought us to the table. They built up their program so big that it would be big enough to negotiate away and still have some left. And it worked. To a certain extent, I think it did. And I think, uh, you know, sanctions have had its role. I think the the role of sanctions, though, in the narrative in Washington has been blown way out of proportion. Uh, and reality is the Iranians did expand their nuclear program while we were sanctioning them. And a realization came uh, in the White House that if, if things remained the same, the Iranians would be reaching a nuclear weapon much sooner than the U.S. could completely bring the Iranian economy down to its knees. And as a result, this was not a winning game. There needed to be an exit. There needed to be an attempt at diplomacy in which the leverage sanctions had provided could be tested. And that's the route that the president eventually chose, much to the anger of the Israelis and some hardliners in Washington, who actually wanted a permanent state of conflict with Iran, a permanent state, if not war, a permanent state of containment of Iran. Mm -hmm. All right, now, so the Saudis, I mean, well, we only have so much time, but they, they certainly... Uh, have launched their war in Yemen in the name of the Iranian alliance with the Houthis, which the best I can tell scarcely exists at all. Gareth Porter showed that 
even the couple of so-called arms shipments that the U.N. claimed, when he went back and, and looked closely at them, they were bogus in the first place. One of them, in fact, was a shipment from Yemen to Somalia. Hadn't come from Iran at all. And, um, and so, but they've been bombing the hell out of Yemen for almost a year now in the name of the Houthis being an Iranian proxy. And then now they've started the new year with this group of executions, including Nimr al-Nimr, who was the highest ranking Shiite cleric in the Shia part of Saudi Arabia. And this led, of course, to the sacking of the Saudi embassy in Tehran, and then the Saudis and other, I, I don't know all, but at least some of the other GCC states have now suspended their um, uh, diplomatic relationship with Iran. And, you know, I don't know what, man, I, you could spin this very good or very bad or or just give us straight down the line what you think this all means. Is this is it possible that maybe everybody's going to step back and cool off now, or this is just the beginning of things getting it's worse and worse here? It's another escalation fabricated by the Saudis in the hope of making sure that they can stop implementation, they, they can stop the United States from resolving its issues with Iran, because that's, again, what they're afraid of. What they're trying to do is to force the United States to come in and take Saudi's side against Iran, and by that, force the U.S. back into a posture in which it is all out trying to confront and contain Iran in the region. That's what the Saudis are looking for. I think Yemen was part of that. Certainly, this provocation with these executions is also part of that. You mentioned Yemen. Let me just tell you something interesting. I'm writing a book on how the Iran deal came about, and I was interviewing an Iranian official who told me that, you know, I didn't even know the Houthis were Shia until two years ago. So the idea that this is some sort of a Sunni-Shia thing and that the Iranians are that tight with the Houthis, etc., is countered publicly by U.S. intelligence, who have leaked it to the media, that they don't see it that way at all. Certainly the Iranians are supporting them, but the idea that they're some sort of a proxy or that Iran is making the decisions for them um, is completely contradicted by the intercept of um, communications that uh, the U.S. intelligence uh, has managed to get. And now let me ask you about that, certainly. I'm not saying you're wrong, but... Uh... Do you know for a fact that they're even sending them money or anything? Um, I, I think there's um, evidence that, you know, there's been shipments of various things, and um, I've seen good indications that there's some weaponry that may also have been sent. Um, and even if that's the case, it's not necessarily very surprising. The Saudis are funding and arming so many different things around the region, and unfortunately the Iranians are as well. The difference, though, is to believe that the Houthis are acting under the influence and guidance of the Iranians. That's where things start to go really wrong, because if that were to be the case, then the war in Yemen is a Saudi-Iranian war. It is not. It is an internal Yemeni um, matter that has been going on for quite some time, actually, that the Saudi decided to get involved in, and the pretext that they use is to say that they're doing it to fight the Iranians. Well, and even Obama himself admitted out loud that the Iranians, that he knew that the Iranians had warned the Houthis, hey, man, don't invade and conquer the capital city because that is going to be a bridge too far and you're going to piss off the Saudis and provoke an invasion, (laughs) which is exactly what happened. Exactly. And and the U.S. has intercepted that communications and knows that the Iranians guided, uh, advised against doing so. And the Saudi and the Houthis did it anyways, because the Houthis make up their own decisions. They're not depending on this on the Iranians. Um, nor are they, you know, uh, particularly oriented towards the Iranians. 
Well, now, but treat it. And if the Iran, if the Saudis are really serious about scotching the nuclear deal, they're going to have to start a war with Iran because nothing short of that is going to get Obama to throw this deal in the trash. I don't even know if that would cause Obama to throw the deal into trash because this is a major achievement. It's probably the most historic foreign policy achievement of the president. Um, it is um, significantly enhancing security in the region and, and for the United States. And the idea that one country who's supposed to be an ally can make a decision for the United States who it can and cannot make deals with uh, should be unacceptable to any U.S. president. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, and especially when... And and this is, you know, really partly Obama's fault or to a great degree Obama's fault for cooperating, going along with this war in Yemen this whole time, is he could have just as easy said to the Saudis, hey, we did this Iran nuclear deal for you. Now their civilian program is more safeguarded than ever, and that'll be good enough for you, King, because I said so. And instead he said, oh, I'll make it up to you and I'll help you slaughter Yemeni civilians unendingly for a year as like a sop to them over their hurt feelings over making a deal with Iran, apparently. And uh, yeah, I think um, even though the, the support of the U.S. to the Saudis on who, uh, in Yemen is somewhat limited, is still way too much. That is, uh, it, it's another senseless war in the region. The U.S. should have nothing to do with it. In fact, they should press the Saudis to end it. Yeah, I mean, it, it amounts to full-scale enabling. I mean, it, it's not American pilots flying, but still, uh, if yeah. if Obama yeah. wasn't helping them do it, they wouldn't be able to. Anyway, I'm keeping you over. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Treat. I really appreciate you coming back on the show. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. All right, y'all. That's a great treat of Parsi. He's at the National Iranian American Council, niacouncil.org. We'll be right back. Hey, y'all. Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at ScottHorton.org or TheWarState.com. Me. Welcome back, y'all. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Oh, God. I don't know how it ended up on MSNBC. Oh, you know what it was? It was it was on CNBC the other day, a couple days ago. And then the signal went out, so I flipped around and it just landed here. Just now they got Obama crying about the gun deaths the other day. Look, dead kids is something to cry about, but not from him. Now they're talking about how tonight at the State of the Union address, these Democrats and their symbols, they're going to have the First Lady sitting next to an empty chair to recognize all those who've been lost to gun violence. Uh, really? You mean as a PR stunt to try to drum up political support for more prohibitions on gun ownership, right? 
Or did you think this was actually about honoring dead human beings? Please. And then, and the real point on top of that, is I got to hear this from the greatest purveyor of violence on the face of the planet and the person whose job it is to keep him satisfied. These two, who explode tiny little helpless children to death, explode their bodies apart every single day, are coming crying to us about how their fields are all turbulent over private citizens in America killing each other with handguns? Are we to be spared nothing? Obviously not, because John McCain's comment to Politico is, Obama should have an empty chair for the dead Syrians. Uh-huh. This is from the guy who's wanted to overthrow Bashar al-Assad and the Baathist, fascist, secular regime that protects all the Christians and all the Druze and all the Shia and all the Alawites and all the minorities and even substantial pluralities, maybe even majorities of the Sunni population of Syria as the only violent force standing between them and a good beheading or crucifixion at the hands of America and Saudis, Al-Qaeda mercenary shock troops in that country. John McCain has been the biggest advocate in this country this whole time of overthrowing Bashar al-Assad since 2011, in which case the black flag of Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State would be flying over Damascus right now. And the 250,000-something killed so far would just be a mile marker on the way to the complete genocide. Coming up. What a load of shit these Republicans, well, the war party, has to shovel on the Syria issue. Boy, look, just repeat my slogan and don't make me explain it, okay? They cry. Because how can they explain, yes, we should build up a force of moderate fighters out of the ether in order to take on Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and Arar al-Sham, who are no different than Al-Qaeda either, the Jaysh al-Mahdi and whatever crap, same difference, Um, or Jaysh al-Islam, and take on Bashar al-Assad and his state army, what's left of, you know, his Soviet-built army there in alliance with Iran and their Quds Force and Hezbollah from southern Lebanon come to help out. And this moderate force, oh, don't worry, this wouldn't require any boots on the ground at all. All we got to do is uh, have the CIA train up somewhere between five and 10,000 mercs, depending on whether you believe the New York Times or the Washington Post. And uh, just ignore the fact that we know that all they do basically is fence weapons and join the bad guys, the Al-Qaeda guys that America claims to be opposed to. And uh, this is, according to John McCain and the War Party, 
uh, what would have kept the casualties in Syria to a minimum. Just give uh, more CIA training and more guns to more jihadists to fight against everyone who's not a jihadist. In fact, I have the quote here from Obama himself, where he quite correctly told Thomas Friedman the notion. Oh, wait, I have even the soundbite here, don't I now? Didn't somebody send me the soundbite? Somebody sent me the soundbite, didn't they? Yeah, Obama's Syria fantasy. Here it is. With respect to Syria, it's always been a fantasy, this idea that uh, we could provide some light arms or even more sophisticated arms to what was essentially an opposition made up of former doctors, farmers, <laughs> pharmacists, and so forth, and that they were going to be able to battle not only a well-armed state, but also uh, a well-armed state backed by Russia, backed by Iran, a battle-hardened Hezbollah. Uh, th- that was never in the cards. Uh, and so... So that's him justifying not doing more, but what did he do? He said, here's a policy that cannot work. He did it anyway. This blood-soaked monster got it exactly right, what he just said right there. But then what did he do? He backed him anyway. I got the Ben Swan quote, too. Ben Swan, I should have had a longer clip here where it includes Ben Swan's question. But Ben Swan asked Obama right to his face. He says, you are using drones to attack al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Yemen right now. And yet, you're backing their rebellion against Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Help us make sense of that, Mr. President. And Obama responded. I share that. Oh, and this is in the spring of 2012. I share that concern. Uh, And so uh, what we've done is to say we will provide non-lethal assistance to Syrian opposition leadership that are committed to a political transition, committed to uh, uh, an observance of human rights we're not going to just dive in and get involved with a civil war that, in fact, uh, involves some elements of people who are genuinely trying to get a better life, but also involve uh, some folks who would, over the long term, do uh, the United States harm. Uh huh. Yeah, nice answer. Oh, we're just providing some non lethal aid. What, like uh, hundreds and hundreds of Toyota Helixes? <clears throat> you read PRI's State Department press release to uh, Public Radio International all about that. You know, there's all that controversy over the poor plumbers from Houston, who the guy who sold his Ford truck and then somehow it ended up in the hands of the Islamic State. And this poor guy and his family are getting death threats from idiots as though it's their fault that the U.S. government is guilty of the highest of high treason since the days of Benedict Arnold in arming and supplying a bunch of suicide bomber jihadists. That made the news because it said, hey, call Johnny's Plumbing on the side of it and had his working phone number on it. Oops. But then our intrepid American uh, press corps, they just couldn't be bothered to ask how in the hell that truck got in the hands of Ayman al-Zawahiri's foot soldier terrorists. Huh, somehow, I guess maybe it was magic, right? That must have been it. A.K.A. Hillary Clinton gave an order, and it was followed. Yeah. All right, anyway, uh, 
But that's what's fun about being John McCain. None of the report, I love, because the Politico story comes with this picture of these completely stupid idiots with their iPhones out recording his statement. With their thousand yard stares, and none of them have the slightest idea of the history of the last five years. And so instead of saying, well, geez, Mr. McCain, the things you say don't seem to make sense. What about this fact and what about that when they say, oh, I see, huh? Yeah, you're smart. If only we'd done more in Syria, huh? I wonder how Obama will respond to this severe criticism. And then you're left to conclude, news consumer, that yeah, I guess that damn Obama. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, man. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Coming up, Patrick Coburn to talk about the history of the last four or five years and how sad it all is. Yeah. It is what it is. Um, Now, I told you it wasn't an H-bomb. H-bombs are hard to make, man. Um... It's amazing to see. I know I'm repeating myself from last week, but it's just absolutely incredible to see how many major American reporters and news organizations were willing to put out as headlines that North Korea had tested a hydrogen bomb simply on the word of the North Korean government. Oh, well, gee, I guess good enough for me. It's a government after all. And everyone knows baby Jesus created governments to love us and take care of us and tell us what's true and what's not. And so, and they don't have a single other thing in their brain to tell them, well, huh, maybe wait a minute for a second and see if I wonder if there's another reason to believe it's true besides just that they said so. Nope. But meanwhile... On Twitter, anyone who actually knows about nuclear weapons at all said, oh, give me a break. If it was an H-bomb, how come it wasn't any bigger than the last one? You know, one of the guys, he said 5.1 on the Richter scale, uh, you know, divide by three, whatever, equals no more than 10 kilotons. The size of the Hiroshima bomb which was still five kilotons less than the Nagasaki bomb of 1945. Hem, reminder, who ever killed anybody with nuclear weapons before? USA. 
But, oh yeah, the North Koreans set off an H-bomb the size of the Hiroshima bomb, huh? Well, this leads to no cognitive dissonance whatsoever in the minds of virtually every major American news reporter, TV or newspaper or otherwise. I was sitting there watching them all on Twitter. DPRK explodes H-bomb. And some of them would say, says. DPRK says exploded H-bomb. But virtually none of them said claims except people who actually are... You know, specialists in nuclear weapons. And I just thought, that's really sad. That's just another example of what you already know, that the people in charge of lying to you all day actually don't know anything. (laughs) You know, I mean, here's one where it's the North Koreans. So if they had a single neuron in their brain that knew better, they might say, oh, the North Koreans claim. And now, if you look now a week later... Um, there are plenty of reporters taking pleasure in, oh, yeah, right. The North Koreans claim that they set off an H-bomb, but they didn't really. You know, they're perfectly happy to spin it as, you know, American nationalist propaganda against North Korea. But they didn't have a thing in their brain that would have helped them do that until after days of reading Joe Serencioni say, no, man, it wasn't an H-bomb. And then they go, oh, okay. But anyway, here's how you know if something is a, is not an H-bomb. It's only 10 kilotons. Now, I guess it's possible that America has nuclear warheads that are so miniaturized that it that they are even thermonuclear weapons, but their yield could be dialed all the way down as low. That, I guess, is technically possible or whatever. But nobody's ever set off an H-bomb that was merely the size of the Hiroshima bomb before. H-bombs typically are measured in very high tens of kilotons or even megatons of TNT explosive force. So, you want to see the biggest ever tested, it's the 50 megaton, or maybe even more, Czar Bomba that was set off by the USSR in 1950-something, I forget. 59, maybe. Or 62, or something. I forget. Anyway. Um, yeah. But so, uh, and then also the other thing is, it's difficult for the Americans to come up to figure out a way to, and, and the Russians too, the Chinese, uh, to figure out how to set off an H-bomb. It's not that easy. And the North Koreans' first two nuclear tests were determined, or at least... Every expert's best guess was that they were fizzles, as opposed to fizzles. Uh, they didn't really work. They only sort of kind of half exploded. Chain reaction failure. Then their third test, which registered 5.1 and was determined to be 10 kilotons, the best guess was that it was a success, but they didn't really know because there was so little information uh, so little radioactive uh, debris was vented from the test site underground that um, uh, they weren't really able to determine. But the idea that then they're going to go from one successful, presumably successful, plutonium implosion fission bomb test to then their very next test is going to be an H-bomb, this tiny, pathetic, isolated, impoverished 
nation state. And then, you know, there were some uh, uh, experts. Serencioni said well, they could have maybe tried to boost it with some hydrogen isotopes, but it wouldn't be anything like what counts as a real H-bomb. And if they did do that, it apparently failed. And it wasn't very boosted at all at 10K. But anyway, 10 kilotons. I don't think they should use K for that. K means $1,000. Anyway. So um, I'm not really just bragging that, oh, wow, I know the difference between an A-bomb and an H-bomb because your fifth grader certainly ought to know the difference. But the important part of it to me is the inanity of America's entire establishment media. These people in charge of telling us what's true and what's false can't tell their asshole from their elbow. And I guess I should have said that, but <laughs> they're, they're really stupid. And they're perfectly willing to tweet out their stupidity rather than wait for a second. They don't even know what they don't know. It's completely ridiculous. But then here's the other thing. The North Koreans setting off nukes, that's kind of a big deal. Maybe <laughs> if we weren't all distracted on the stupidity of whether it's an A or an H-bomb going off here, we could talk about why the North Koreans are setting off nukes and whether there's anything that could be done about it by the Americans, even if you know nothing of history and reject all American responsibility for the crisis on the Korean Peninsula, still, hey, here's a place on Earth where there's a greater than 0% chance of a nuclear bomb being dropped in a violent conflict. Let's have a negotiation. As our guest last week, Christine Ahn, said, let's have an end. Oh, and that's the article today on antiwar.com by her. Let's end the Korean War. You know, Jimmy Carter and William Christopher negotiated a perfectly good agreed framework deal with the North Koreans. We could have another. George Bush Jr. destroyed it for no good reason at all in 2002 and three. Pushed them to nukes in the first place. Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, sorry guys, just stalling for time here. A little bit of trouble getting a hold of Patrick Coburn, but that'll be coming up in just a sec. Uh, I am Scott Horton, and this is my show, The Scott Horton Show. It's basically anti-war radio is what it is. Uh, you can find my website at scotthorton.org. All my interview archives there. More than 4,000 of them now. 
going back to 2003. And, uh, oh, yeah, like I was saying, the support page is there, too, at scotthorne.org slash donate if you're into it. It's a matter of marginal utility, you know? The more money you have, the less it matters to you whether you give a bunch of it to me. That's how it works. Should work, according to Austrian theory. Here we go. Coburn online. Um, so this would be sad, but good. Um, and so, yes, introducing Patrick Coburn, Middle East correspondent for The Independent in Britain. That's uh, independent.co.uk. And uh, he's the author of a whole bunch of books, most recently, The Rise of Islamic State. Welcome to the show, Hello? Patrick. How are you doing? Can you hear me okay? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Okay, good deal. Uh, welcome back. How are you, sir? I'm fine, thanks. Good, good. Really appreciate you joining us again on the show here. Sorry about the uh, Yeah, no problem at all. Uh, very important piece that you wrote here um, at the Independent. The Arab Spring began in hope, but ended in desolation. And I remember well you uh, advising us on the show back in 2011 that, well, this is possibly the start of something, but it's going to be a really tough road to hoe. And... Um, and you really do a pretty good job of, of kind of taking us through, geographically speaking, kind of, uh, you know, through the Arab Spring and what the results have shaken up to be. And you say that there's at least one partial success uh, that can be attributed to the Arab Spring uh, revolutions. Is that right? Yeah, Tunisia. There's still something uh, surviving there, elections there. Uh, everywhere else, it's not just sort of, failed, but it's been a calamity, you know, that Syria is torn apart by war, more than half the population are refugees or displaced, quarter of a billion dead. Libya has broken up, is run by these little warlords and militias. Uh, Yemen, uh, caught up in a, being attacked by Saudi Arabia, civil war. Uh, Bahrain, the monarchy, the Sunni monarchy crushed the rebellion very brutally, a lot of people tortured, and is now even more of a uh, authoritarian state than it was in 2011 when this started. Bahrain has a, a Sunni uh, monarchy, but a Shia majority, they're more oppressed than they were. And Egypt, of course, which was the, the most important uh, country where you had... Uh, uh, what was described as Arab Spring, um, Great Hopes, Mubarak goes, but they never really took over the um, levers of power. And uh, when there was an election that was run, uh, won by the Muslim Brotherhood, eventually the army comes back um, and now is more authoritarian than ever before. So disaster all round with the possible exception of uh, Tunisia. Incredible. All right, well, so going back to Tunisia there, that's where it started when this young man, I forget his name now, I had learned it there for a while, um, set himself on fire in frustration over the uh, regulators closing down his vegetable stand. Um, and, and there had been, and actually, we should mention Chelsea Manning in the role of the WikiLeaks revelations here in, in the run up to it, where in the fall of 2010, all these WikiLeaks cables came out and some of them described the corruption of the Ben Ali regime in such detail. And this had become a major controversy in the media in Tunisia in the weeks leading up to 
this man's self-immolation and then the riots that spread from there and the revolution. And um, so, you know, for people to go back and, you know, try to remember how it was at that time. But so I guess I'd ask if you could to give us a, a bit of a thumbnail sketch of how things have developed since then. I think I remember reading that the Islamists had won an election, but then they'd lost one. And they stepped down from power and let the more left faction come to power um, in, you know, the co- kind of uh, typical Western democratic way. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, this is the one place where um, the uh, democratic change seemed to uh, stick. Um, why did it work out that way? Or let's say, why did it not work out that way the other places? Um, I think in most of these places like, uh, Libya, the, uh, Egypt, um, there was a certain wishful thinking, self-deception in the West about who was rising up. They were always more uh, Islamist than they appeared on the television screens. There was always more of a civil war than people, uh, bore in mind, uh, kept in mind. You know, things like Tahrir Square in uh, Cairo were kind of designed for television. It was a very sort of media-friendly revolutions, and everybody talked about the great influence of the social media and so forth. But at the end of the day, you know, the the army remained uh, in power, uh, I mean, potentially in power, uh, the newspapers, the television still remained under control of the old regime. And for about a year, they were intimidated by what had happened. But gradually, they realized that the, the sort of the uprising was very uh, disparate, didn't really know what they were going to do. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood. So it didn't really want to change the state. They wanted to take over the state. They wanted a kind of, uh, uh, the same state, but in this time it will be operating in a more Islamist way and under the direction of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, it didn't work. They got to their all in jail now. Yeah, well, the ones who are still alive, right? Sure, yeah. Um, and the other, you know, there was a great hypocrisy about this too, because who was supporting these uprisings, you know, in uh, Libya and, uh, um, Syria? were countries like Gatter, you know, were the Gulf monarchies. Uh, that's where the money was coming to uh, pay the salaries for the rebel fighters. It was always absurd to think that you were going to have a secular democratic revolution in uh, Syria that was somehow going to be supported and funded uh, by countries that were absolute monarchies, not only absolute monarchies, but uh, were theocratic. They had, a, you know, particularly regressive uh, religious beliefs. Uh, so there was a great hypocrisy in the West of thinking, I think, that you could uh, have a revolution with that sort of support behind. And, of course, on the contrary, they backed the most Islamist and often the most jihadi uh, groups who were trying to overthrow the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so in Libya, it seemed like, uh, well, if you could contrast it with Bahrain, uh, for example. In fact, I think David Gregory or one of these hacks asked Admiral Mike Mullen at the time, well, what's the difference between Libya, where we're helping the rebels overthrow the government, and Bahrain, where we're allied with the king who's crushing the rebellion? And Admiral Mullen said, well, Bahrain is our ally. 
Mm. <laughs> in other words, hey, we stationed our fifth yeah, fleet there, so shrug. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's the way it was. I think at the even from look, their own self-interest, you know, the the Western powers, the U.S., Britain, and the others, uh, they thought get rid of these people who don't who've been opponents of our foreign policy, noticeably. No. Oh man, internet connection problem. Oh, I'm sorry, Patrick, are you there? Yeah, you're cutting out on us. Well, we're going to break anyway. We'll be right back, y'all, with Patrick Coburn. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Hey, all Scott here. If you like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Well, if you got to have technical difficulties, right at the break is good timing for him, I say. We've got Patrick Coburn on the telephone line now here. We're talking about the Arab Spring and this great piece that he wrote for The Independent. You can also find it at uns.com. The Arab Spring began in hope but ended in desolation. And I guess at the break... Uh, we're talking about how America took the side of the king in Bahrain while they took the side of the revolution in Libya. And the reason why I had nothing to do with democracy or anything like that is just American national interest. Right, Patrick? Hey, because that's the way they looked at it. But, you know, when you uh, look what the outcome was, you know, was it in their interest that uh, Libya eventually disintegrated after Gaddafi? You know, that it's been self-deception to think that the anti-Gaddafi forces could uh, uh, take over. You know, I think one thing to keep in mind about, I always keep in mind about Libya, was that when the rebels, uh, uh, their uh, transitional government turned up in Tripoli and after uh, the um, uh, Gaddafi had uh, been pushed out, the FS proposal was the abolition of uh, uh, the laws banning um, polygamy. Um, right, and awarding you know, a medal to John McCain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's um, so. I mean, that's the kind of guys they were, really. I mean, it's that uh, they were, you know, there were a lot of good people there, and as well. But that gave the sort of the flavor of what was uh, what was happening. Now it's just, but was this in the interest of the U.S. or anybody else? Well, certainly none of the Europeans, because now. Uh, from West Africa who used to work in Libya, they were getting on leaky, sinking boats and trying to make it to Italy to try and uh, uh, emigrate to uh, Europe. Mm. Um, you know, the same thing has happened in uh, Syria. Uh, these old countries are also the breeding ground of Islamic states. So, you know, they, they kind of acted in there what they imagined with their own best interest to get rid of the governments that were sort of, I guess, opposed to their interests but not very vigorously, 
and what they've got is a real disaster instead. One thing that strikes me about this is nobody sort of can, is blamed for it, you know. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton is blamed, you know, from what she did or did not do in Benghazi, but the the overall disaster of American and European policy in Libya is very seldom brought up, so far as I know. Likewise in Syria. Uh, likewise, you know, in nobody don't even know where Yemen is, you know. Right. These have been disasters for the people there, but also disasters which for the ripples for which reach Europe and eventually reach the United States. Well, no end in sight either. And yeah, I mean, it is amazing. The narrative in America still, John McCain uh, put out a statement today saying, uh, basically shaming Obama for not doing more in Syria to get rid of Bashar al-Assad back years ago. And, you know, there is no follow-up question, Patrick, that goes, well, Mr. Senator, but who would rule Damascus now? They don't have to think that far ahead. They just say, should have done more. That's all. McCain in 2007 in Baghdad, walking down a street uh, with, uh, in front of the television cameras, saying how uh, U.S. had traveled in Iraq, and uh, here was this uh, safe street, which is perfectly safe, without revealing that he's wearing body armor under his clothes, you know. Of course, most Iraqis don't have the money to buy uh, body armor. Uh, you know, so there's a big element of uh, hypocrisy in this. Yeah, he was also surrounded by an entire battalion and Apache helicopters and everything else at the time, yeah, too. Uh, Put a uh, Roman uh, emperor to shame. Know, it's, kind of banana, it's kind of really sort of crazy, this uh, business of uh, if we get rid of Assad, if we got rid of Assad then, you know, the moderates would have taken over. What moderates? They were never there. Well, these believers in moderate, moderate, you know, the Syrian moderates, uh, the question to ask them is, you know, if they believe in these guys, that they're very moderate and they're powerful and control Syria, why don't they go and visit them in Syria? And they never do. And the reason is, of course, they know they'd end up in the boot of a car pretty soon. And shortly afterwards, you know, they'd be uh, uh, hostage for money, you know, and probably end up in jumpsuits having their heads chopped off, you know. So it's very telling that the, the advocates of the Syrian moderates make very sure they don't you know, they'll interview them outside Syria, they'll talk to them on the phone and on Skype, but they don't <laughs> actually visit these uh, powerful people in Syria because uh, they know it's funny. Indeed. All right, now, so there was a little bit of an Arab Spring uprising in 2011 in the Shia part of the, I guess what you'd call the northeast of uh, Saudi Arabia there, uh, where most of the oil is. But I wonder, uh, and I, I don't guess there was much of an uprising among the rest of the majority Sunni population there, or Wahhabi population, whatever it is, but uh, no one ever really talks about this, Patrick. How stable do you think the Saudi kingdom is? Well, I think, you know, there's an enormous change from then to now. What you bother is the price of oil. You know, we're looking now at, uh, what's the price of oil? It's about $31 now. You know, maybe we're looking at oil at $20 a barrel. Uh, and that's, you know, what's going to stabilize Saudi Arabia and the oil states is they can pay everybody out. You don't have the money, you can't do that, you get to destabilize. You know, a place like Iran. You know, I remember a former minister telling me, you know, the one time he'd seen the Iraqi cabinet uh, panic is when the price of oil went down. But then it was going down to about uh, $50. Now it's 
came out down to 30 dollars. So there are people, you know, there are whole chunks of the population just haven't received their salary. Uh, you know, up in my Kurdistan, when I'm there, you can get a taxi in our deal, the, the capital. You know, there's two things about the taxi drivers. One, uh, they don't know where anything is. And the secondly, that they're wearing you know, their trousers, their military fatigue, their camouflage. The reason is that they're soldiers who haven't been paid. who are trying to make some money driving a taxi to pay their family. All right, and then... And that's what's really making it, uh, you know, previously they could buy people, or, or, you know, that's one of the reasons also they're appealing now to, you know, that's why I think they uh, executed Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr, this uh, Shia cleric, and um, they um, executed a lot of um, uh, other people they're accused of being jihadis. I mean, since the court system is um, completely unfair, we don't know what they were, but uh, did. But um, uh, you know, I think that revving up uh, anti-Iranian, anti-Shia feeling among the Sunni majority in Saudi Arabia is partly to make people forget. You know, that the week before this, uh, ex- these executions, they had an austerity budget that suddenly uh, Saudi is having to pay more. You know, previously in these countries, you had a kind of social contract where the elite monopolized political power. There was no political liberty. They took a great deal of the money, but a certain amount went out in sort of government jobs and uh, controlling prices and uh, low low prices for fuel and you didn't pay for education. Uh, But when uh, they don't have the money to pay that, then you have uh, people begin to get really angry when they notice that what money there is is being uh, stolen by the elite. Right. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting the way you say that in this article here where, you know, they can start to talk about, oh, yeah, let's have free market this or that. But, in fact, they have a system that's so rigged that you start so-called privatizing the the uh you know, services at the very lowest level, what you're really doing is you have a system of patronage where the the most of the people with the least are all being kicked off the dole while the kings and their friends make even more than ever before. Very self-defeating policy over the long term there, sounds like. Yeah, this is one of the things that happened in Syria. It's not brought up very much, but, you know, neoliberal economics. Originally, you had the Ba'ath Party, under uh, Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafez al-Assad, and uh, very authoritarian, very brutal. But, you know, there was a sort of social contract that people, you know, prices were controlled and low. It was very cheap to live there. People would uh, uh, get, uh, you know, a lot of things uh, from the state. they get jobs from the state. You have neoliberal economics coming in. In a situation, a country where there's no accountability, where there's no... Uh, um, where the legal system is um, wholly corrupt, and this just becomes a license to plunder by those with political power, those around, those at the top. Right. Well, and I guess we're out of time for this, but maybe I'll ask you one thing here real quick uh, at the end. Uh, people say, and you may actually taught me this years ago too, actually, uh, Patrick, now that I think about it, that um, the Turks shutting off uh, – 
the I forget if it was the Tigris or the Euphrates. I guess the Euphrates that they had built a new dam and they were kind of uh, putting all kinds of new pressure on the Iraqis and the Syrians as well. And then plus they had some drought. There's some people who say, oh, global warming, this and that, and that this is a big part of it. That um, everybody's farm went fallow, so they all moved to the cities, but they just moved to the ghettos. Uh, they have nothing to do except fight. Yeah, I mean, you have that, I mean, you have sort of people in um, who arrived and lived in sort of slum areas of cities, and these, you know, are openly the hardcore for the uh, rebel opposition now. Uh, also, you know, the way it wasn't just global warning, but such water as there was, you know, was often uh, corrupt government officials would over-exploit water, do digging wells everywhere, you know, would then sell all the water or use it on their own land. So, uh, yeah, they, I mean, that sort of, um, you know, this type of uh, free market economics, you know, it's not too great in Europe or the U.S. It increases inequality. But uh, in uh, countries like uh, Syria and uh, Libya and uh, other places like that, they, you know, it, it's, it put an unbearable pressure on the mass of the population. Yep. All right. Well, it's uh, been a pretty long and ugly five years. But as you say, uh, there's a little bit of silver lining, at least there in Tunisia. And, you know, I, I have to think that at least in Egypt, the lesson has been learned that when and if they get their act together, they can overthrow their military dictatorship. And that's, you know, the biggest, most important country in the Middle East right there. It seemed like the the lesson of 2011 can't be completely lost on them, the population of that country, just how much power they have uh, when they act together. And Yeah, so. I mean, it's, it's, there's truth in that, but it's also true that the people who have power have also learned the lesson, which is anybody gets out of line, you know, you torture them or you shoot them or you put them in prison. Yeah. You know, when they're local for student elections and suddenly... People who are against the status quo that elected, they just, you know, immediately closed it down. So, yeah, lessons have been learned, but they've been learned by those who hold power as well as those who don't. Right. Yeah, and of course, all the Muslim Brotherhood guys have learned the lesson that, geez, I guess Awahari was right and we just have to fight after all instead of standing for election, because yeah, why bother? Yeah, I'm a that way. And of course, it's up the amount of that is in the interest of the presence, you know, of uh, Assisi, the uh, present holders of power, because they want to say we're under threat from these fellows, you know. Right. Um, and um, so, uh, but, uh, you know, this is also a sort of tremendously impoverished country. Uh, you know, half the population living as a dollar, maybe two dollars a day. They've got any money from Saudi Arabia and uh, the Gulf. But, um, but, you know, as we were saying, those countries don't have much money don't have the kind of money now that they had previously, you know, that, um, you know, Saudi Arabia to pay all its bills needs the price of oil, I think, at $104 a barrel, you know, it's $30 a barrel. they got reserves, but they're going down. Right. All right, well, I've kept you over time here, Patrick. Sorry about that. I'll let you go now, but I sure do appreciate all your work on this and coming on my show all the time the way you do. As always. All right, y'all, that is the great Patrick Coburn from The Independent. The book is Rise of Islamic State. Read it and check out all his great articles at independent.co.uk and uns.com. That's U-N-Z, uns.com. And we'll see y'all tomorrow.